0: So Corey, who's the lead author of this paper, she made a really good point where she said, you don't actually know what downstream effects uh, a piece of knowledge will have. Like you could you could imagine in your head like, oh, I shouldn't share this because of the effect it's going to have. But you may not really be accurately predicting what that effect could possibly be. So who are you to say what the future is gonna need? Welcome to the Rogue Journal Club, where we tear studies apart so you don't
1: have to. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shio Sophia production, featuring long-form discussions of peer-reviewed studies, published in academic journals, and their connections to society. I'm Adrian, And I'm Gina, we'll be your hosts. A journal club is when academics at universities get together to talk about papers. But we've gone rogue. We're going to do journal club our way. Join us. On this episode of the Rogue Journal Club, we review and discuss the article Pro-Social Motives Underlie Scientific Censorship by Scientists, A Perspective and Research Agenda. The article appeared in a 2023 issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and the first author is Corey Clark. Sweet. Back at it again.
0: Here we are. (laughs) One more. (laughs) <laughs> One more before the holidays.
1: One more before the holidays. Speaking of, Merry Christmas. Happy yes. Holidays, all that jazz. We are, we are yeah. festive. For those of you listening, obviously you can't see it, but oh well.
0: Um, go watch it. I just it. realized I, I blend with my background. I should have like a green background so there's contrast, but you know, couldn't think of anything. I, we literally just like, I saw Adrienne's hat. I got jealous. I put my hat on. So
1: <laughs> you, you just made um, me think like green screen you do a green screen back there with the snowfield behind you and the whole works. Oh, yeah. That'd be fun.
0: That's fun. <laughs> I, I actually, I do kind of want to build a green screen for like the, our music videos and stuff. So maybe there will be a green screen in the future.
1: <laughs> that'd be fun. All right. That'd be all yeah. sorts of fun. So, um, this so. is one of those times for us that we picked an article that, uh, suddenly quite prominent actually um this is very timely when it came out um because i think it was yeah it was published like right before thanksgiving so we're getting this in um within a month of when it was published so let me put that up here for our viewing audience so they can follow along with which article this is um so this is the one we have um some of you may have seen folks tweeting about it. You may have seen news articles about it. You may have seen all sorts of things, but um, entitled pro-social motives underlie scientific censorship by scientists, a perspective and research agenda. And um, actually, there we go. I'm going to say there is the author list is quite a who's who I noticed. <laughs> um,
0: I don't know if you oh, had the Stephen chance Pinker. to look at all the authors. Yeah, uh, I didn't realize until just now that Stephen Pinker is on it. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a favorite of mine. I've read a lot of his books, um, especially mm-hmm. the ones about writing. They are excellent, um, and he he uh, soothes my soul as a, uh, a a style curmudgeon. I'm like, ah, yes, <laughs> I found my kindred spirit. But yeah, he's definitely a mind. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, Roy Baumeister's on this paper. I didn't know he was still out there. He's controversial. He um he's the guy that wrote the popular books is there anything good about men? So he's um got a reputation, huh?
1: I did not know that he wrote that.
0: Yeah, I actually read is there anything good about men a long time ago before I had um left the left as they say. <laughs> And it made me really angry. It made me very, very upset. And I cried actually over it. And uh, I think wine was involved. It was not pretty. Um, And I, but then there were aspects of it that just like sat with me. And I said, but he makes actually some good points. And it's interesting now looking at it from the other side. (laughs) So, yeah, I didn't agree. I didn't agree with everything but i think he wrote some things in a way to be provocative because it was a popular book and his anger toward feminists i think i understand uh at least i read anger toward feminists into the tone of the book so um (laughs) it may not have actually been there i don't want to put words in his mouth but yeah Mm -hmm. interesting i did not notice that until just now i'm like oh well then okay yeah
1: Um, yeah, and folks and folks may remember from side chat saturday the name Uh, Lee Jussum here who is also one of the one of the authors the uh, the famous fiddling pirate actually on Twitter I think he (laughs) his his avatar is the dark fiddling pirate so he's like (laughs) on Twitter
0: Um, oh and well the lead author is Corey Clark she was in that call too the blonde girl yeah okay Mm -hmm. so
1: yeah like other folks like Musa Algarbi who's a very prominent sociologist and very critical of a lot of things so you keep track of that kind of s- stuff with censorship for a while um michael bailey nicole barbaro uh nicole barbaro i i know because she's actually behind doing the heterodox academy surveys of um of campus free speech and expression uh hmm. a few others in here
0: um like oh, actually yeah, so- your your friend uh, Miss Anna, uh, uh, Doctor Anna Krylov is on here. I just saw. So yeah, she definitely deal, is. So,
1: so this really spans the gamut because Anna Anna's a uh, chemist, and Corey and Lee are both psychologists. So this really spans the gamut of who was on here professionally. Um, yeah. Like Glenn Lowry is here too. So just like
0: of all the yeah, posts, right.
1: this was a who's who of authors.
0: <laughs> yep. Um, cool. There are (laughs) even papers that I like. I still always have some kind of curmudgeonly cranky thing to say about it. Hence my (laughs) Karl Popper's Bulldog. uh, Wait, I'm trying to point at it. There we go. Karl Popper's Bulldog uh, subtitle. Um, But honestly, I actually like the paper. And I certainly agree with where they're going with it. There were just some things that I was like, sad that with the all-star author list, that it wasn't better in certain ways.
1: I can agree with that. Um, I can agree with that assessment. I thought it was very well-written for the most part. Again, some little things here and there. Yeah. (laughs) Much like you Um, with that. But I also... um, I also thought some things were perhaps a little bit lacking and not thinking about some of Well, maybe they just didn't have space because I think PNAS has some really short, you know, really, really tight um, word limits. You uh, know, so I yeah. think I'm not 100% sure if it's them or they just didn't have space.
0: Um, you know, yeah and, I mean, yeah. and I think some of my criticisms kind of come from the fact that this is meant to be a communication between social scientists and not meant to be public communication. So the people who they're writing to may be aware of what studies they're talking about when they cite them. So I'm going to say that up front is possibly an explanation, but I'm still going to point the stuff out anyway, because I think it matters for, for other reasons. <laughs>
1: okay. So do you want to read the, um, do we, do we want to read the abstract first and then hit our sort of three top of the line kind of notes on it? Yeah. Or... Yeah. Yeah, do that, that works. Uh, The abstract. Science is among humanity's greatest achievements, yet scientific censorship is rarely studied empirically. We explore the social, psychological, and institutional causes and consequences of scientific censorship, defined as actions aimed at obstructing particular scientific ideas from reaching an audience for reasons other than low scientific quality. Popular narratives suggest that scientific censorship is driven by authoritarian officials with dark motives such as dogmatism and intolerance. Our analysis suggests that scientific censorship is often driven by scientists who are primarily motivated by self protection, benevolence toward peer scholars, and pro social concerns for the well being of human social groups. This perspective helps explain both recent findings on scientific censorship and recent changes to scientific institutions such as the use of harm-based criteria to evaluate research. We discuss unknowns surrounding the consequences of censorship and provide recommendations for improving transparency and accountability in scientific decision-making to enable the exploration of these unknowns. The benefits of censorship may sometimes outweigh the costs. However, until costs and benefits are examined empirically, scholars on imposing sides of ongoing debates are left to quarrel based on competing values, assumptions,
0: and intuitions. That last line, I feel like, needs to just be in somebody's email signature. <laughs> <laughs> like, like as you communicate with your academic colleagues, that last line, or the last two sentences, I guess, for context, uh, should be, like, in an email signature that everyone sees on a regular basis. Because it's so... <laughs> It captures the problem so well that just what these conversations tend to sound like when you're trying to make any kind of headway with a person who uh, is on the so-called opposing side of the the topic, DEI being the topic. So,
1: yeah. Not, Not just DEI. I'm sure there's a lot of things where that might be the case.
0: Yeah, a lot of things for sure. Um, but yeah, so we have this thing where we're trying to stay organized. And I had suggested earlier that we each come up with our three main points that we want to get to. And just in case we don't get to them all, at least they've been mentioned, uh, once, or maybe there's some overlap because Adrian, I didn't discuss this before we started recording. So I don't know what her things are going to be. She doesn't know what my things are going to be. So we might find some overlap. So, um, if you, do you want to go first?
1: Them down as I think of them. So maybe you should go ah, first. So
0: I can go find. First. <laughs> cool. I'll go first. You search. Okay. So at the start of every podcast, uh, I've decided that I'm going to say these three things because they're the things that I say in every episode. And I'm just going to say them at the beginning. And then the message will get across, hopefully a little better. So everybody needs to read Karl Popper. That's the first thing. That's what I say all the time, like a broken record. Second thing, journalists are the ones causing most of the problem in my opinion sorry journalists but that's what i think and then three the internet is bad for your brain in general so a little bit um ironic given that this is happening on the internet but so uh rogue journal club is totally not bad for your brain it's the only thing on the internet that is not bad i'm just kidding it's all terrible um okay so don't listen to this
1: there's there's some of it that oh gosh who said it who said it i think it was an old mythbusters episode where the host adam savage sent something (laughs) said something along the lines of nothing would be you know more no one would be more thrilled than i if the internet was a reliable source of information but it is simply not so it's an information minefield full of some good stuff and a whole lot of nonsense
0: (laughs) yes that is very true so yes exactly um, so I
1: my i've been re-watching episodes
0: oh yeah those are awesome i love that show <laughs> um a real classic of the internet so okay so my three points about the actual paper though um so i have this written down as so many weasel phrases omg um and i will elaborate on that as we go uh it It's not actually something that I think is intentional or sloppy or any indicator of the author's not being intelligent or talented or any of that. I think it's a habit that comes from academic writing. Um, so it, it, there's a bunch of things that bug me. So I have some examples, but it was kind of throughout. And then second, is i'm glad in the section entitled distinguishing scientific rejection from censorship was there that was a a very important section and i super appreciate that they explained to the scientists how their field is supposed to work (laughs) um and then i have one caveat for that that i'll get into which is unsurprising because it's the thing i say at every episode and then Um, The third was, I wish there had been more original data in the paper. It kind of made me wish that this was a survey write-up or an audit report or something. And um, it was a lot more speculative than I had realized it would be. So hopefully they intend to write up uh, the thing, but it looks like maybe it's in a conference proceeding. They cited that. So I, I don't know where they're headed with this, but Anyway, it was encouraging to see that there are other research groups besides them that are interested in this question based on their reference list. So that's all. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I, yeah, and I would take the last one. I'll take the last one first in that what I got from it was slightly different in that, wow, I didn't recognize there was actually such a lack of actual peer-reviewed research on this you would think the behavioral scientists of all people would be would be interested in this or the folks who are studying science itself and transmission of knowledge and things like that would be interested in that topic but that's kind of what I drew from this and that there's a lot of anecdotal data and survey data and things like that but there's not really peer-reviewed studies or a lot of them I'm a lot of them specific to scientific censorship. Let's put it that way. And then that, yeah. that's the conclusion, bottom line that they came to at the end of the paper is like we need we need data. We need a lot more data. Yeah. And this is You all right? Oh. <laughs> Piper what happened?
0: <laughs> Cat interruption.
1: Sorry guys. Um so let me explain what the heck happened because I'm sure our audience is now at this point completely confused. Um, As <laughs> so am I. Have, I. <laughs> I have a desktop computer, so I have a giant CPU tower that's sitting under my desk here, and the cats do like to sit on it because it's, you know, spinning. It's nice and warm when it's cold, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Piper was trying to get onto my legs, which are under the, under the desk and next to the tower, while she was sitting on the tower, and she slipped uh-huh. off. Sliding down my legs. That's
2: Ooh, not comfortable. Yeah,
1: she was fine. She actually didn't stick my claw, stick her claws in my legs. I was just totally confused for a minute. I was like, "What the? Oh is yeah,
0: here? like what's happening down there?"
1: <laughs> Darling, are you okay? Yep, you're back up on the tower. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Indeed. Uh, so there was that. uh The other thing is that i got out of this is um i also agree with you the the distinguishment of rejection versus censorship i i'm really glad they got into that because the with so many of the anecdotal things and the intuitive stuff and and, and the intuition stuff and what have you there is right now a bit of a tendency to conflate i got rejected with somebody censoring me and not a lot of clear distinction in there where there should be there needs to be that so i agree yeah. with that um the other one i got was just a really broad thing and it was the first immediate thing i wrote was scientists are human congratulations that's one of the things you've told us just, <laughs> scientists are just as human as everybody else um yeah. that, you know we do have a tendency to be upset with things that go against our own proclivities um <laughs> yeah and no less than anybody else and um I think there was a there was a line somewhere where they were talking about talking about how people um how we how how scientists are not immune from the same proclivities as any normal person um yeah so that's that's one of the big ones that came to mind for me but um those are my top of line kind of three points yeah. I got the paper but cool. um where do we begin
0: <laughs> Well I can go through my examples of the weasel phrases cuz that's that's something that might pop up again. So uh I say, I call them weasel phrases because they're like the things that you say like some say this or it is said that or it is it is pur- purported that and it has sort of like a like um like a ghost as the subject and it's not always clear like who is saying it or where that information comes from, like the claim. And so you get around that by having a little citation after it. And so you assume, okay, that citation is gonna clue you into where that, that claim came from. But the problem with doing it that way is it's not always clear what's in that citation. They sort of make a like an interpretation and then cite it rather than explaining what the source actually said. So there's a couple of examples. So um, citation 28, uh, let's see, where is that? It came after, uh, I highlighted it, I believe, in the paper. It's on page, wait a minute. I'm going to just go right to it with Control-F magic. Um, So it's on page three, and it's at, the it's at the end of the first like main paragraph of that page the one that starts with a third class exerts influence informally
1: oh that one yeah
0: yeah so citation 28 came after a sentence that says institutions also fear reputation and financial damage and so individuals inside and outside of academia can use whisper campaigns and social media to pressure institutions to censor and wealthy donors can threaten to withheld fun- withhold funding to do so. And so I expected that Citation 28 was going to be uh, something that showed examples of this occurring, but it actually just pointed to another paper that simply speculated about these things maybe occurring, just like this one. So it was almost like um, kind of a pointless citation. It was just like other scholars think this too, but your mind when it sees a citation is like, oh, there's examples of that, of, of wealthy donors withholding funding. There's there's actual citations about whisper campaigns. And I wish there were. I imagine those things would be very hard to have in a peer-reviewed paper. But if you read that sentence, you're going to think that there's a lot more evidentiary weight behind that than than there actually is. It's a speculation. And that, that's one example of this happening many, many times throughout the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and that... It's like a writing quirk that really bugs me because it meant that I had to go look up that paper and see what it actually was and I wish that the authors had done that work for me by saying other scholars have speculated that this also might be the case or um you know a a, a book chapter such and such these people um you know something that explains what kind of data that is um and it's it's even more salient in another example, which I even uh, agree with, but because it feels true. But I know for a fact that we don't have a lot of good hard data on it. And it's at the top of the next page, and it says most modern academics are politically left leaning. Um,
2: Hold on a second, and
0: that that citation number seventy four. I was like, oh. We have data on that. So I went to Citation 74 and I found that it was another um, kind of uh, speculative piece. And the data that they were referring to is not from that paper, but it was mentioned in the paper. And the two sources of data on that are Jonathan Haidt asking people to raise their hand at a conference publicly outing themselves as conservatives and an anonymous internet survey, and as social scientists, they should know how flawed such data is, and if you're going to talk about it in your paper, you shouldn't just say most modern academics are politically left-leaning full stop as though that were, like, actually known, but you should mention we don't have really solid data on this, but a couple of instances mentioned in such and such at all, so I don't like... (laughs) That so, that yeah. sentence made it seem like it was a hard, harder data than actually is, and so those are those are just some of the examples of this thing that bugs me. So,
1: okay, yeah, no, I can see that, um, and and it is an unfortunate quirk. I have observed that too with with academics, not just in social sciences, but it's happened in physical sciences too. Unfortunately, um, though, I can think that makes it interesting to me because see i know there are particularly this one you just mentioned i know there are studies that have explicitly surveyed what you know what what groups what are the academic leanings and i think fact matter i saw one just on twitter not too long ago um where they were actually showing that like you know there's like fifty-six to zero ratio of left to right in this field, or something like that. I have seen those kinds of surveys. They do mm-hmm. actually exist, and it does support the notion that is that is here most yeah. most of it does that um, academics are politically left leaning for the most part. Um, yeah, I don't sorry. think the claim I, is wrong. Yeah, I, it strikes me that it strikes me strange that they wouldn't go find that. Now that you've said that, because yeah. there is data to actually support it, you didn't necessarily need this particular paper. And of course, obviously we'll just say this because it's distinctly possible. Some of the authors could watch this later. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, sure. Kylie, um, you know, if we, if we had something wrong, feel free to tell us, you know, <laughs> we're, yeah. We're no, probably- I mean, I
0: know about, I know about somebody that did uh, a study on academics, campaign contributions, and that also revealed a bias towards the left as well. So it's, There may not be like one study showing this, but there's a lot of things that you could cite in a big old list um, that are 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 a little bit better than raise your hand at a conference and an anonymous Internet survey. There are better sources for that information. And I point this out mostly because. When I read stuff about this topic, and this is like the only topic I've read a journal article about and probably since I left my career. So this is the only thing I've been reading papers about is like for our show. And I keep seeing this happening over and over. So I put on my far lefty hat when I read these things. And like if I was the other side of this, what are the things that I'm going to zero in on and poke at as like a, a weak case for the problem because one of the things you really want to do when you're trying to make change like this is to make like an airtight case for what you're what you're pointing to as the problem if you're going to write a persuasive paper like this then that's kind of what you need to do and i just thought that was weak if i was a lefty i would point at that and say well actually there's no way to know that actually they're laughing you know what i mean like that would be the thing that i would go after a lot of other things too and so I think that was the issue that I had with that other paper you sent me uh, a long time ago, where I was kind of mean to the authors <laughs> a little bit because I, I was like a little maybe having a cranky pants day or something like that. But it was I was putting my my angry lefty hat on again and basically trying to pretend that I was on that side to see right. what what I would consider vulnerable for attack mm. in the in the argument. Now, if I agree with them that I think I mean it feels true. Most modern academics are probably left like that's probably like kind of a dirt, dirt duh thing. It's very obvious if you're in <laughs> academia that the, it feels very true. It would be nice if there was a large data set on that. So um I guess there's a bunch of smaller ones.
1: Yeah, no, I I I'd have to go dig it up on X again because I do remember seeing it. And I actually said it for once. I said it was X and not Twitter. That is astounding i keep I keep saying twitter uh, instead of X, so that's astounding um that's I'd have to go dig it up because I do remember seeing it that some folks have done that that um larger scale survey of different disciplines, and there was I literally saw it just the other day. I can't remember who did it um or who put it up actually because it was it was a graphic where you could see you know it kind of it was arranged so the bar got larger as you went to the bottom. It was one of those kinds yeah. of graphics, but it was um it was talking about the ratio of left to right-leaning professors in a discipline. Um, And it might've been based on like one or two colleges or something like that, but at least it's something, you know, it's something more than just um, just raise your hand or an anonymous online survey or something like that, which those do have their value, but I can kind of agree, just at least acknowledge the caveats of that, (laughs) you know?
0: Yeah. And you know,
1: sorry let it me may uh, be,
0: go ahead sorry
1: yeah let me sorry about that let me finish one point but i will i will go with i will i will give them a little bit of a, a break in one thing in that you and i talked about it at the beginning we actually don't know off the top of our heads what the pay, what the word limit is for PNAS. and so no. i i have to give them a break that they might have been trying to meet the word limit that way um i still would have been like can you just a little give me a little more on caveats but I can understand that as a problem when you're trying to get a journal article published.
0: <laughs> yeah, that could be. I think so I guess it I guess to explain all of those things really well you can't do, but I wonder if you wouldn't increase the word count by all that much by just changing the the way that you say it in maybe just a, a couple more characters or the same number of words. It could it depends, I mean, obviously, I can be an armchair critic. It's easy for me to say I didn't put all the work into the paper. This is what you do, you know it the science trains you to be kind of like eh, 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 you know at, at everything, but I think it's important to be writing about this, and I don't want to act like I know better than someone who does this professionally because i I don't and i and I don't want to be that person so. And it may yeah. very well be that all the people who read this know exactly which studies they're talking about, and I just don't because I'm an outsider, and so that's another factor to consider.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you and I are both outsiders to this topic, specifically with the exception of you know both of us having having been in science at some point, um, or, or still in, or how... I think I'm yeah. still a scientist. Am I still a scientist today? They... Yeah,
0: <laughs> you're, maybe, you're maybe also Santa Claus, but... Um... <laughs> in general in general scientist <laughs>
1: <laughs> but um i'm i'm science santa how about that um yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the um no it, and i think we should preface this i think because i think these are really good critiques that 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 you're that you're giving um uh and that i agree with with you on the critiques but i think all both of us agree with the premise of the article in that there is a lack of there's a lack of research on this topic to begin with (laughs) and there needs, and the authors are trying to highlight that there needs to be more about it.
0: Yeah. It's, it's definitely hard to study things that, you know, for example, how could you study that whisper campaigns occur? How could you study that uh, wealthy donors are, are withholding funding? How would you know that that was the reason that funding is withheld? It's like all these things that are plausibly deniable, And you just are going off of hunches and professional body language and tone and clickiness and just kind of all those subtle human things that you're just like, you want to be able to write about it in a paper, but you know you don't have anything that stands up to scientific standards to be able to write about it. So you sort of have to read between the lines. And I respect that it's very hard to point these things out in this format, but somebody you have to try, you know
1: yeah i mean definitely and and in this case it's you know, it goes back to their to their own kind of thing of distinguishing rejection from censorship in that there's not the proper data necessarily to make that distinction anymore um yeah and with some of the stuff that they they've cited yeah you know um
0: yeah where's that spot oh yeah so Uh, I can, I can hit the tennis ball back to you if you want to do one of your three things. And then we come back because my next one is that, so maybe it'll, it'll blend seamlessly.
1: Yeah. Um, I think where I really appreciated the article because I've, I've gotten more and more curious and interested in, in science history, um, in the last few years. And so I immensely appreciated the section on historical examples in because with together with some of the psychology research that they do point to that does talk about you know human proclivities for certain for certain um certain things and wanting to not see things or or what what is what is this word for it it's oh criminally there's um I can't find it now. I'm doing terrible. I can't find it today. But um, I was looking for it because they talked about the psychology article, uh, the psychology research, which is there and is robust and talks about the tendency to misremember things or to remember things falsely if it lines up more with what you think and oh, all of yeah. that. I just can't remember where it is in here. I'm I'm blanking on that. But um,
0: I know what you mean. I kind of remember that spot. Hang on.
1: Yeah, you, I, I keep I looking and I'll
0: look for it we can divide and conquer
1: (laughs) (laughs) but i'm i really appreciated the historical examples because i mean it's a thing that we should remember as much as we try to practice um the process of science and to be diligent in getting at the truth we do have to recognize that scientists have a certain amount of well we're all human right (laughs) Um, yeah. We're all human, and we're all subject to the same sorts of biases as everybody else. And just being able to think on a higher level, or to apply Popper's falsification, or anything like that, um, mm-hmm. doesn't alleviate that particular part of human condition um, from any from any scientist who's practicing. And I actually really appreciated seeing that, and the reminder of that uh, with the historical examples but also throughout when they're talking about the types of censorship or things or things like that which i can get down to that table in a
0: second but um if you if you do control f and search bias and science you'll find the section you're talking about with the uh, yeah It's in the section of distinguishing scientific rejection from censorship. It's like right there.
1: You know what you're talking about. I don't know why my control F is being so weird that I'm scrolling all over the place, but maybe this is just the way Mm -hmm. it is today.
0: Um, It's being it's being control f'd.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, here it is. People disproportionately search, share, and remember even falsely preferred information. In addition, people are selectively skeptical of discordant information. Uh, and more negatively evaluate scientific methods when results are undesirable. Um, similar patterns occur among scientists. For example, peer reviewers evaluate research more favorably when findings support their beliefs, theoretical orientations, and political views. Scientific papers describe ideological outgroup members more negatively than in-group members. Scholars are likelier... Likely, er, I feel like that's grammatically not correct, but that's a whole other thing.
0: Um, likely, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I
1: think you're likely is the correct grammar, but I'm not 100% sure. Scholars are more likely to reject papers ostensibly written by little known authors than identical papers ostensibly written by prominent authors. Um, in an analysis of scientific papers, 96% of statistical errors directionally supported scientists' hypotheses, suggesting credulity among scholars toward favorable outcomes. So things like that in other words I can I can simplify it in one very short phrase.
0: Scientists are human. <laughs> yep. Very human. Um they forget so- that. They like to think that they're just brains that um whose legs get them to and from meetings, but we are we are full humans after all.
1: <laughs> I'm, I I I want to put that statement on a shirt. <laughs> Scientists are just brains with legs that get them to meetings. <laughs>
0: I, um, can't take credit for that. I read it somewhere else and I forgot who it was. So, uh, honestly, it could have been Steven Pinker for all I know. It sounds like something that would have been in one of those books that I read of his, but I don't remember who it was. It was someone cool though.
1: (laughs) I still want to put that on a shirt somewhere. Yes. Maybe maybe I'll ask the folks at Woke Screen to turn that into a shirt for me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's it's really important for us to remember that because like seeing this and being reminded that scientists do these things too does mean that just because we have the scientific method and popper and try to adhere to that, it doesn't mean we are immune to mm-hmm. the kinds of particularly soft censorship um that's in that's in here. Um and thank goodness for this table, because this is a great table for looking mm-hmm. at all of that um because this is the kind of thing it's the soft censorship that is far more likely in an academic environment um and in science in scientific publishing and the like than than the kinds of hard cens- censorship where you just use power to say no to something um whereas in the other cases yeah. you know, more social ramifications and, and this goes to another psychology thing we we do really like to be liked by people <laughs> really yeah. what it is so um and we like to be welcomed by our peers as we do research so yep. it's a it, thing of it, it it is a real thing and humans are not immune to doing that um yep. and scientists are certainly not immune to doing that so that's one of the kind of main pieces that i was thinking of when i read this article which yeah It's funny because it shouldn't be an earth-shaking kind of thing, and yet sometimes we need to remember these things, so maybe it's quasi-earth-shaking at the same time, but um, simplest way to think of to summarize the entirety of the article is, you know, scientists are human.
0: Yeah, and our, our, our training as scientists should help us get around that better than someone without that training. That's sort of the idea, but yeah, it never works perfectly. It can't. That's That's why we have the um, the community of scientists and they talk about that, too, that you can leverage uh, what is the intellectual competition can combat bias by leveraging scientists bias against one another. So you have a different bias than I do. And we both discuss a paper and learn stuff that we wouldn't have learned if we had just been sitting reading it by ourselves. So Mm. that kind of thing. yeah, I mean, what was I going to say about scientists being human? Um, shoot, I forgot my point. But and actually, um,
1: while I'm thinking yeah. about it, this, this one last key sentence highlights something that I have said many times on the channel, um, outside of the Rogue Journal Club, is that when scientists share preferences, competition may support systematic suppression, which is to say, groupthink is
0: bad. <laughs> yeah, short way to I say. Mean, it. Yeah the the guy. I already forgot his name. I'm looking at the author list. Was it Lee Jessam who was in the pot, the episode you sent me. So yes. he, he has the view that my husband and I share, which is, uh, you know, this kind of intimidation and group think it works if you let it work. Yeah. And you know, I I realize that there's another view, or like, yeah, if you're the sole breadwinner of a family of four, and your scientist career is all you know how to do, you're not going to be as willing to stick your neck out. And if you're, you know, independent and you have other sources of income, or you're you're confident that you can find another job because you're early in your career, you might be more likely to not be intimidated. But it's also a personality trait too. I think if you're attracted to the tenure track lifestyle you may actually be a very risk averse person naturally because the idea of a job for life is very appealing to a risk averse person and so you don't necessarily appreciate the the intellectual freedom part of tenure you're more attracted to the job for life part of tenure and so yeah. maybe that like is also why that subgroup of academics tends to be like a zip your lip kind of play by the rules i want everyone to like me kind of thing uh, I personally grew up with no one liking me, so I don't really care. I'm kidding. <laughs> I do. I mean, even though I have that attitude sort of superficially, I do actually care, um, you know, of of accidentally uh, being perceived as offending someone uh, or mischaracterizing someone when I don't mean to. So I'm like, I always have a million caveats even on the sh- the show where I don't want to, you know, so well, I say that, but good I don't
1: care what that yeah. is.
0: I don't want them to come for me either but I also do care about uh like proper methods um like as far as the Popperian critical rationality I care a lot about that for very personal reasons and for professional reasons so so yeah it's important to kind of figure out how to balance that because you know th- this ain't the fifth grade science fair this is your this is the future of knowledge you're one of the, the thought leaders if you're a scientist your your job is to pursue reality and and uh be uncompromising
1: the unfettered and zealous pursuit of the truth that defines the scientists themselves as somebody's hero and somebody's villain all at the same time
0: <laughs> yeah very true that is oh, my
1: speak- profound thought of the day
0: it was good we, there should be like a profound thought sound effect or something if if uh if kieran were here he would tell us we needed a sound effect for that
1: if you know maybe maybe that that'll be the christmas present to myself as i get a soundboard for us to work with Ooh, you know
0: fun yeah, yeah that Theater would be
1: true. cool Have fun <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep. Um. I, on the truth thing though this is where P- popper's bulldog comes in so it made me want to revisit what popper said about truth and by the way if you read popper you being the listener or anyone don't read about popper on the internet read popper's actual books because most of the internet sadly doesn't understand critical rationality so um they think that there's paradoxes and he has addressed all of the common criticisms in the books and there's thousands of pages of of addressing so if you have any kind of concern or confusion it's been covered you just got to find it so yeah um so he says so they they say um in the distinguishing scientific rejection from censorship i got to pull that spot up again Derp, derp, where are you at? Okay, there we go. Scientific truths are built through the findings of multiple independent teams over time, a laborious process necessitated by the fact that nearly all papers have flaws and limitations. When scholars misattribute their rejection of disfavored conclusions to quality concerns they do not consistently apply, bias and censorship are masquerading as scientific rejection. I 100% agree with where they're going with that. I do always bristle at people saying phrases like scientific truth because it implies, at least to the casual reader and maybe many academics, that certainty can eventually be found with enough work and it can't. And that is an unsettling reality of the Popperian logic. Um, The only way to evaluate if a scientific conclusion is worth accepting is by the method used to obtain it. But even that never means it's true it means right. you It means you work with what you have. So yep. that's a little bit of like a pedantic thing. But I see it a lot in these papers that are talking about this general topic area, because obviously what truth is and what conclusions we should accept and how we know things, like that's a central part of this whole DEI debate. It's like, how do we know what's true? And we don't. But it doesn't mean that that means anything is true. It just means that the method of obtaining the knowledge matters. It's the only thing that you can look at because yeah. we will never know if something's true. So oh, yeah. I and try to, I try to not say that prove or true ever in my science writing because of that whole thing. It it sends mm-hmm. the wrong message. So.
1: Yeah. So no, I, I understand what you're, what you're, getting at, although I'm curious, how would you, I mean, I I know, I know you agree with the thrust of the
0: sentence.
1: How would you rewrite the first part of that sentence?
0: I'd probably sit here in my Word document for a while trying to hammer out something, (laughs) Um, but I think it would probably be something like um, scientific knowledge is um, constantly being built upon itself through multiple independent teams over time, a laborious process, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, And then I would add something about how, um, you know, the uh, certainty um, cannot be found, but the way to evaluate something, if it's worth accepting, or if it's of high scientific quality is how well it adheres to the critical rationality methodology. Um, And that matters a lot when you're talking about bias and censorship masquerading as scientific rejection because that's a clear way to point out is this really a quality concern or is this an ideological rejection you can see that if you look at what the person's criticisms were if the idea is controversial but it followed the critical rationality method then you can accept it even though it's uncomfortable so to me that that's that would have been like a more robust way of talking about that um and of course yeah
1: i was gonna say now that you because you mentioned it, I'll go down here and and bring it and bring it to it. And that there's um, there were a lot of things that they suggested that goes toward that, toward being able to provide it so that you could uh, get into that. So like, I think the the, request to make it open as possible where reviews and editorial decision letters can be provided in online repositories. So That gives you an opportunity to see. Oh, yeah.
0: I love all their recommendations because it does open it wide open. So you can actually look at the method and the reasons. So I see that they know the beauty of the Popper stuff is he didn't invent any of this. He's just describing what scientists were already doing Mm. and put some words to it. And so it frustrates me when I see scientists that are writing about the critical rationality method very well, they're doing it but then when they talk about it, it sounds wrong to me. Like it doesn't match what the actual process is. And so if we could just tighten up the way we talk about how science works, unfortunately, the public's attention is on journal articles now more than ever because of the internet. And so you do have to be a little bit more careful in how you talk about that. Because if you say stuff like truth, and prove and all that it comes across sounding really dogmatic and then it gives the impression that science is dogmatic even though the process itself isn't uh based on how the people who are succeeding at it are actually doing it i'm Mm. sure i'm sure the authors of this paper that was an all-star list i'm sure they know this it's just it's just just yeah yeah uh,
1: well and that's fair and that may be just a communications thing and only knows if any of you lovely authors of this paper see this feel free to leave us your thoughts and commentary or what have you and yeah who knows, maybe after the new year one of them would be interested in being on for a side chat saturday and they could really hash that out
0: Ooh. yeah that would be fun and i'm open to them telling me that i'm a know-it-all because i kind of am sometimes yeah. so <laughs> um but you know that's just i've been a lot more free with my thoughts since leaving academia, and it, it feels good to be able to be myself and say what I think about things, even if sometimes it comes across as a little cranky. I think I care a lot about these things, so I'm okay with sometimes coming across that way.
1: <laughs> well, you're talking about the channel that is raw, unfiltered, and informal science on YouTube. So I <laughs> be as yeah. cranky and you know, shit on papers and glorify. It. Well, not well. Maybe yeah. You shit on papers and glorify papers but we can be as cranky as we'd like to be let's put it that way
0: (laughs) in real life I'm actually a very like passive people pleaser so in a way I'm kind of this is my rogue journal club (laughs) alter ego (laughs) in a sense so
1: we get into critiquing Um, but yeah you and I had the same commentary on the distinguishing um scientific rejection from censorship with the fact that we both liked that it was there so
0: yeah, I mean, yes, thank you, authors, for saying that and for teaching your fellow scientists how science is supposed to work. <laughs> and it, it's honestly nice, too, because quacks use that, uh, that line of reasoning a lot, that science is closed-minded because they won't accept my kooky idea that was basically a hypothesis that I decided was true without testing it, and therefore I'm being censored. I'm like, no, you're actually just being rejected because you didn't do science. You can do some science. And then come back when you've done some science. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I when I've sat on peer reviews, I've had to had to can a few articles because I'm like, mm, no, you you're you're presuming a
0: conclusion. <laughs> yeah, it happens a lot, and you know it, it happens so much with COVID and all these other like highly public. I mean, it ha- I mean, it, climate's like kind of the OG uh, topic for that. It's like ripe for that. So, yeah
1: oh goodness what was our
0: me uh, we I were talking sure. about um there not being any data that was actually my only thing was they they talked about a survey that they did but it was looks like it was just um at the stage of being at a um, conference proceeding and i i like craved for it to be a full paper and i thought that's what this paper was when you sent it to me originally but um
1: Oh yeah. You're, you're talking about like this from the.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can I get it? Oh yeah, yeah. I can get it open bigger. Look at that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was interesting. And I mean, admittedly you got to start somewhere. Right. And it, I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to have something appear in a commentary article before you've gotten the full peer review done. It may, the only danger that i could see is you might get some of the people who might be reading the commentary maybe eventually your peer reviewers which is kind of a problem because you've like preformed some thoughts about it um so and you
0: may find some mistakes in your method and then you've got this thing out there and that maybe the journalists see this but then they don't see the correction that's kind of a common problem mm. but i the journalists cause a lot of problems uh In general, so I guess you can't always speak to them. Um, They they like looking for outrage fodder and they'll find it wherever they want to find it. So in a way, you kind of can't torture yourself with that. But I mean, it would be good if the survey had gone through peer review first to make sure that the methods that people agreed that the methods were sound. But I mean, how complicated is this a survey? I think it, it was a survey, right?
1: Yeah, you're talking about this one, the one of the, the
0: 468 one. people. Uh, yeah, yeah. From this thing, I see. Oh,
1: oh, okay. I know what that is. That's the Free Speech Union. That's in the UK. I
0: think. Oh, okay. No, it was a different thing. It was uh, in a more recent survey. Is the start of the sentence? So in, oh,
1: it's fires survey. I see it.
0: Yeah, it's uh. 460 90. U.S. psychology professors reported that some empirically supported conclusions cannot be mentioned without punishment, especially those yeah. that unfavorably yeah. portray historically disadvantaged groups.
1: Um, so, I don't know exactly where it is, but.
0: um, It's on page. Oh, I'm looking at the PDF. So it's, it's in the censorship among scientists section. It's like the third paragraph, I think. Third or fourth paragraph. Oh, here it is.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I guess
1: I was scrolling back and forth over it. Like uh, <laughs>
0: because a majority of psych of these psychology professors in the survey reported some reluctance to speak openly about their empirical beliefs. That's a strange phrase, empirical belief, um, and feared various consequences if they were to do so. Respondents who believed taboo conclusions were true, self-censored more, suggesting that professional discourse is systematically biased toward rejecting taboo conclusions. Uh, A minority of psychologists supported various punishments for scholars who reported taboo conclusions, including terminations, retractions, disinvitations, ostracism, refusing to publish their work, regardless of its merits and not hiring or promoting them. And then compared to male psychologists, female psychologists are more supportive of punishments and less supportive of academic freedom. Findings that have been replicated among female students and faculty and so they Cited a bunch of other surveys, which is nice. So there's some data, but I would like also like to read those citations to make sure that's actually data. Um, given that there's a bunch of times when I've thought it was data and I've looked at the citation and it wasn't. So yeah, given, I that. yeah, and I don't know the field, so maybe the people who read that know exactly what they're talking about and they know what the data is. I so I'll give so this them is- that.
1: This was Corey Clark's, Corey's the lead author. It's her own presentation from the FIRE conference.
0: Oh, okay. So it's uh, so it's a presentation of maybe unpublished data.
1: Yeah, it might be stuff that's, but this is 2022. So I would hope she would have gotten that published by now, but maybe not. Um,
0: it takes a long time to write a paper.
1: <laughs> it does. And it takes a long time to work through things. So again, yeah, Nathan Cut I've heard of and Eric Kaufman has written a lot for fire and i mean they're pointing they're pointing to another problem that they, they've talked about this actually they're talking about it right here that most of this has done been done by nonprofits, not by <laughs> not by peer-reviewed journals of anything um or any peer-reviewed pubs so oh yeah i remember this one i i covered this one actually on the channel and i think it was quite well done in terms of the analysis and what heavy that was in there but again done by a nonprofit. it Never went through a proper yeah. or anything with that to the best of my knowledge, so um, yeah, and then 104 to 106 is these three um, value gap, free expression, the K foundation. What is that? Never heard of no, that. I've never before.
2: heard of that. Uh,
1: hmm. yeah, and then this is this is. Peer reviewed, I believe, although that might be in a preprint server. I'm not 100% sure on that one um, with the okay. gear. And, so interesting for sure. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. It's definitely not the like wham bam awesome, like robust data set that's set that you want, but it's something. So
1: it's something. And yeah, admittedly, that's one of the critiques they have of themselves and of the field mm-hmm. somewhat in general, in that there's not data. <laughs> There's not yeah. a whole heck of a lot of data to work with. Um I mean aside from the surveys done by by the folks who actually think it's important to think about this stuff and and work with it be it Fire or Heterodox Academy or um or any of any of a number of different groups at this point. So um it's really interesting because it, they they've pointed to what little data there is, but Yeah.
0: See, if it were me, and I don't know if this is going to make me sound like a know-it-all, but I'll go out on a limb and do it anyway. If it were me, I would have waited to write this paper for when I had the full survey data analyzed. And I would have made this stuff a lot shorter as a a nice meaty introduction Mm. to the survey report. And then the data would have been kind of front and center. Because there's a lot of things that are very speculative in this paper that maybe could have been left out um, and they could have focused completely on what the data was and then built the narrative around what we do know instead of filling in uh, all this, all these speculations. And I, I mean, I think some there's like this trend now that I don't know if I like that much that journal articles are sounding more and more and more like op eds every day and i think i just really wish scientists would stop doing that like i want i want to see less pandering to the internet audience and more scientists talking to each other again and like remembering their responsibility to knowledge and not to not to set people on the internet straight because that's a losing battle <laughs>
1: <laughs> there is certainly a losing battle with that because you just i mean there's you can't get it across in 280 characters i'm sorry it's yeah. not gonna
0: and, you, and it seems like you can't get it across in a pnas paper either i mean it's like that's why carl popper wrote the open society and it's this freaking big like it's there's a lot of stuff to cover on this issue of how do you govern people how do we how do we deal with our differences how like it's huge you you know i i would say it's probably not worth trying to write these these borderline think pieces anymore because I don't know if maybe the goal is like well we have to claim this and we have to write this paper because we need to plant a flag in this research area and say like this is a question that we're pursuing we would like other people to pursue it I mean that is kind of where the paper yeah that's where
1: where they're ultimately going is is the notion that hey, we did this, but we recognize (laughs) that the data is a little bit kind of not great and not out there. So how do we do this as a research agenda? Which, again, it it was a surprise and an interesting surprise to me that they, that behavioral scientists really haven't, you know, really haven't gotten into uh, looking at this. You know, you think it would be more there, um, but it's not. And it goes back to i covered this a lot um in the last couple of weeks from the time of this recording um like there was a recent release from again pew take it for what it's worth it's it's pew research and polling but um they're the only ones i know of who have done decently long record recurring polling of the public with regards to how does the how well does the public trust scientists which is has been on my mind for a while and actually i mean if there was one other thing that i could add for what for what i was um thinking about is i appreciate that they actually put in a fair bit on um on that issue of what would happen um, with respect to the public and the issue of trust and downstream downstream consequences for different institutions that rely upon scientific research, whether they like it or not, they rely it, rely on it, um, <laughs> those kinds of things. Um, and that's the thing I've noticed with Pew. Um, the longer longest term thing that I could really find that looks at it um, is that public trust in scientists has gone down. Um, it was interesting because there was a little bump in 2020, you know, during the pandemic, where everybody went up a little bit. Um, and in this most recent iteration, they found that because, like like 2020, uh, 2016, it was kind of a lowish point, then it went up in 2020 for a little bit. And since 2020, it's kind of fallen off again, where the number is now the number of folks who say they have a lot of a fair amount or a lot of confidence or a great deal of confidence, I think it's the language um in scientists to act in the public Mm -hmm. interest in particular is now lower than what it was in 2016 which Mm.
0: yeah i remember reading that 2016 report when i started my writing stuff at blue marble uh that Mm -hmm. was a report that i started a big discussion in one of our slack channels about whether we should consider the the rate the percentage of people that trust scientists to be a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of um, proposition. Um, And so the fact that the glass is emptied a bit more is pretty unsettling. And it kind of, it kind of means that whatever SCICOM is doing is not working. It's going in the wrong direction.
1: Wow. And I mean, in, in light of, for those of you listening to this and, you know, we're taping this um, not too long after the, the hearings um in congress with the three university presidents and all of the discussion and consternation that has evolved since then and a lot of my thoughts since then has have dwelt on that issue of trust but also um on the on what i have noticed and i commented on this a few times on twitter so those of you who are following me at twitter at the time of this recording would know that it was on my mind but um on the fact that there's nary a bit of introspection did you notice that there's nary a bit of introspection as to thinking hey maybe did we do something wrong here that people aren't helping us
0: (laughs) yeah no there's definitely no introspection i was in meetings where i would point this out and would be met with uncomfortable silence at at best (laughs) Um, there's not there's almost a willfulness about not recognizing it. Like like I don't care that I'm alienating them. They are bad people and deserve to be alienated because they have the wrong viewpoint. That honestly seems to be more common of an attitude at least among science communicators and I don't know I don't know enough about the vibe in in science proper but i know that the science writing on the internet world that i was previously in definitely had that attitude and i remember often saying you guys we have to care what the science denying people that you call them science deniers whatever that category of people is we have to care because if we don't care and we don't try to learn what the what someone else who's not us thinks and why They come to the conclusions they come to. You can hold those things in your head without agreeing with them. Mm -hmm. If we don't care, it's going to get worse. And it seems like it got worse.
1: Yeah. And I mean, if there was a fourth thing I could add to our three, because I think we got through our three, actually. Surprisingly, I think we got through them all. (laughs) Yeah, we got
0: through them all in an hour. Good for us. (laughs) Organization.
1: Thank you for the brilliant that was that was a fabulous idea. So we actually have some organization because otherwise we tend to just rant.
0: <laughs> like two squirrels running around a cage. <laughs> yeah.
1: You're oh well, actually, you know what it reminds me of is this is gonna be a tangential story, but it I think it fits. Um uh, when I was in undergrad, uh I was walking through the courtyard one day and uh everybody stopped and they were all looking up at this tree and what it turned out to be was these three hawks chasing around for one squirrel <laughs> in the tree <laughs> that's kind of what that's i'm a... thinking of with some of our rants like one would dive this way and the crowd would duck and
0: <laughs> oh my god that's like a bad day for that squirrel that's terrifying that squirrel <laughs> did
1: eventually lose
0: <laughs> oh well yeah it happens Circle of life. Um, um. yeah <laughs> it's sad it's... <laughs>
1: it is the one thing that i really appreciate with this article that they went into it and considered it briefly but i think actually carefully um because it's only like two paragraphs where they actually get into it um but briefly but carefully in actually noting you know may also reduce public trust in science if censorship appears ideologically motivated or causes science to promote counterproductive interventions and policies the public may reject scientific institutions and findings. Indeed, a recent investigation found that nature's endorsement of Biden, President Biden, by the way, undermined trust both in nature and in scientists in general. Loss of trust may reduce skeptics willingness to cooperate with scientific recommendations at crucial moments during pandemics, for example, causing avoidable problems for public health and safety. A broader erosion of trust in institutions could have downstream consequences for liberalism, pluralism, and democracy. Censorship Mm -hmm. may be particularly likely to erode trust in science in contemporary society because scientists now have other means besides academic journals to publicize their findings Mm -hmm. and claims of censorship. Uh, This goes back to your internet is bad kind of notion right there. (laughs) If the public routinely finds quality scholarship on blogs, social media, and online magazines by scientists who claim to have been censored, a redistribution of authority from established scientific outlets to newer popular ones seems likely. Given the many modes of dissemination and public availability of data, prescribing certain (laughs) research areas for credentialed scientists may give extremists a monopoly over sensitive research. Scientific censorship may also reduce trust in the scientific literature among scientists, exacerbating hostility and polarization. If particular Mm. groups of scholars feel censored by their discipline, they may leave altogether, creating a scientific monoculture that stifles progress. Which gets actually right back to the other thing I said before, groupthink is bad.
2: (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel like I've lost trust in the scientific literature because I, I think that not enough people actually understand How to do science and there's there's a lot of there's a lot of political agendas on both sides that show up in papers that frustrate me even the ones i agree with i'm like yes i agree with you on a personal level but don't do it that way that i feel like i have that thought a lot Mm -hmm. when i read these kinds of things also by the way that first sentence that's uh precedes uh, citation 115 and 116 Uh, citation 115 is a popular book and citation 116 is a preprint server paper so Mm -hmm. already it makes me want to be like okay well yes in theory they
1: did the the thing in the paragraph after that they went for stuff that's newer sources of media
0: yeah i lost it hold on a minute i gotta go back to where it doesn't let you go uh, hit the back button uh, on um, PDF reader, so I have to like keep searching. Okay, yeah, they talked about that, which was nice. I'm glad that they at least explained that one. Um, nature is highly compromised, and it, it a lot of their examples are from nature. So nature, Nature Communications, Nature Behavior, like oh look, nature is at it again. Nature is incredibly politically <laughs> compromised like i wouldn't say that that's representative of all journals i would no. say people probably should stop publishing in the brand name journals and go with the technical publications that i think they're just less flashy so they're less vulnerable to being compromised Mm-hmm. but yeah
1: yeah that's um i mean actually and those of you who who watched side chat Saturday would have seen this particular figure, the figure two, because actually Lee showed this during side chat Saturday. He actually brought, he brought a slide deck with him. And that's what we went through as part of his side chat Saturday appearance. So we ended up talking about this, which, I mean, it's a good, it's a good sort of visual representation. You know, when you, when you get into epistemic consequences with scientific censorship, and maybe you're ignoring all this stuff out here that says the thing that has been accepted as true, obviously we're using Obviously, we're using the inappropriate language here on the Popperian incense. So please, yeah, please call him for bulldog, just you know, chime in.
0: Um. <laughs> yeah, I think I would say that I like this, but what belongs in the small circle? Uh, well, I guess, like to me, this diagram, you'd want to actually sort it by. Like, how do you know what 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 which of the stars to accept? It would have entirely to do with the method. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily say it's true. You would just say, um, you know, the total evidence out there, how much of those, how many of those stars represent good methods and how many represent crappy methods. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean the peer-reviewed literature has a monopoly on good methods. It should, but I think these days I'm more skeptical of it, sadly, because I just feel sad. It's, it seems like a lot of scientists are compromised or a lot of papers are written by people who are young and inexperienced, like early career and graduate students write a lot of papers. And a lot of them, they're still learning and they're sloppy and they don't learn philosophy of science in grad school. So you can't really have a high degree of confidence. And so yep. just because it's in the peer reviewed literature, I don't know. I don't like the word true. I think I think it's good methods. It's, it's quality methods versus crappy methods to me, not false versus true. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I can agree with that in, in part at least. Although, um, actually I remember Lee talking about this would be a, a bit because with, with psychology and some of the social stuff, it's a little bit different from the physical sciences where you could set up an experiment and, you know, end up proving somebody wrong if you if your experiment is good. But like, one of the things he points out with the social sciences that I didn't really think about before he mentioned it is the is the notion that just because your experiment is set up and you don't see evidence of something doesn't mean an effect isn't there with the social sciences right. because it just may be so small that you can't measure it. Um, that kind of thing. It may yeah. be so little of an effect
0: um or you haven't or you haven't set up an experiment that's uh that can detect it like it's maybe an experimental design question too like maybe you have to just be a little more creative or maybe there's like a proxy that you can test for instead or something it just depends on the whole it depends on a lot of things Mm -hmm.
1: but yeah those are the those are the main kind of things that i had so i mean yeah well i'm i was really pleased with the paper barring some weaselly
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I I I like I'm I was happy to see it when you sent it to me. I was like, oh good. I'm glad somebody's finally talking about this. And I sent it to my husband and his collaborators or like his friends, I guess. Um they discuss this topic privately a lot, um, just like all sides of it. So um a lot of people find this stuff interesting and it it's gotta get some light shined on it and if the first few papers maybe are not like my dream journal article like so what you know they you have to start somewhere um i do have some final thoughts and i actually wrote it down because i wanted to make sure i didn't ramble so i kind of have alluded to a bunch of these things but okay as far as talking about the consequences of disseminating certain research results. Like that problem is not really lost on me. I do think that that you can't handle the truth thing is true for some people. Like there are some things that I think maybe some scientific conclusions, the public may, and the public being all of us, you know, the scientists included that we, that may not be appropriate for mass dissemination because they're still being hashed out, like things that are kind of sensitive. I mean, that's not lost on me. So I had this thought. Scientists should stop seeing their papers as news articles and stop worrying about what the public will think of their papers. They need to stop talking to the invisible Internet audience and remember that journal articles are technical communications of research results to other experts. The science journalists, however who scour the journals for outrage fodder are the ones who should be making the, asking themselves whether it's wise to report on scientific findings that might have social consequences if discussed at the wrong time or in irresponsible ways it's really the communicators that are burdened with this i don't think the scientists should be carrying this burden you should be able to study whatever you want and report on whatever you find if you, given that your methods are sound but yeah. Whether it needs to be publicly disseminated and shouted from the rooftops and tweeted and xed or whatever the hell everybody's do- doing now, um that is a fair question. Do we need to make some preliminary controversial result like do we need to have that stick in everyone's mind as you know science has you know for all the trust it's lost, it's still science the the method still Mm -hmm. has a lot of weight in people's minds. That's why quacks love to try to pretend they're science, because they know it gives them credibility to do so. Um, And so science does carry a lot of weight. So if you talk about a scientific finding that says something about a disadvantaged group that's unfavorable, you do have to be careful. you know, if how, when you let that out of the bag, but I don't think having it in the journal is the problem. I think ha- it's having it on the internet, like in the popular sort of discussion sphere, that's a problem because it takes on a life of its own. It can be, it can become dangerous. Mm. Like, even if, it, even if the original idea isn't, those are my mm. final thoughts is like, don't, I don't think the scientists should be carrying the burden of the censorship. I think it's the communicators that should be carrying that burden.
1: Yeah. Um, no, I I I think that that makes sense to me, and and that is a fair thing. You know, when do you cross a line with a question that the communication side of it, you have to be concerned and careful about how you put it out there, and also knowing that unfortunately you're probably going to have somebody who goes because internet being what it is, goes and mm-hmm. finds it anyway and have it has their yeah. nefarious things with it, even if it is a yeah. benign question um with it so yeah
0: <laughs> my 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 uh my statement is more prescript prescriptive than descriptive in that this is what i wish people uh, this is what i think people should do but of course internet's going to internet and my wish will not come true i'm sure
1: <laughs> that that may well and truly be the case but i think it's still quite it's a valid a valid point um and there that to think about. And that may be a whole discussion that we can just have, regardless of whether or not we have an article at some point, because there's a lot mm-hmm. of argument now online that I've noticed that scientists should become communicators, um, should be tasked with that burden um, more so than the science communication folks or the science journalists are currently.
0: Yeah, we could have that discussion because I actually don't know where I stand on that. I, I've thought about it a lot. And since I was a science communicator and I left, there was a point where I thought SciComm itself is pointless because people believe what they want to believe. And if they want to learn about science, they'll come find you, but doing like kind of a one-way communication, it maybe people don't want it. And I, I was very disillusioned when I left my career. And so I, I think I've kind of swung a little the other way and I have a little more of a positive attitude at now about it now, but um It is frustrating to do SCICOM in the face of so much bad thinking and, and even among science communicators, you feel like you're kind of hitting your head against a wall. So, um, it's hard and like, yeah. So yeah, I think people have to be careful what ideas they take and run with. And that's worth thinking about. But you know, in that podcast you sent me, what was the guy's name, the host of the show? I forgot. Yeah. So he, so Corey, who's the lead author of this paper, she made a really good point where she said, you don't actually know what downstream effects uh, a piece of knowledge will have. Like you could you could imagine in your head, like, oh, I shouldn't share this because of the effect it's going to have but you may not really be accurately predicting what that effect could possibly be. So who are you to say what the future is going to need? I think that yeah. that was that was a completely good point. So Yeah.
1: No, and and that's exactly that's exactly it as much as it's an innocuous question you will have no idea what somebody's going to do with it. And to try um, and make that guess of what somebody's going to do with it, the you know you're going to be shooting it shooting in the dark for lack of a better way to describe it you you know you can't you can't account for every possible way it could be used or misused or abused or what have you um but of course then this is where again (laughs) i'll preface this in that we could probably do a whole side chat saturday just on this topic of communication and responsibility of a scientist and all this kind Mm -hmm. of innocuous, innocuous thing but the 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 thing that i'm thinking of is that I think I re- yeah, my advisor actually asked me something similar to this actually on my written prelims when I was doing my dissertation and that was oh goodness that was almost 10 years ago. <laughs> um I feel old now. Um
0: was <laughs> <Time flies. laughs> Yes. But
1: um, but yeah, the he asked me something about that in, you know, at, at what, what responsibility does a scientist have for how the knowledge they produce is used or represented by others? Do they yeah. have no responsibility for that? Or do they have a responsibility to chime up and say, you know, when somebody uses it wrong, say, no, you're using it wrong. Here's why. That's not what it says. Um, and I think of some contextual examples like years ago with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying the world was going to end in 2030. Well, the the scientists involved with that because it got such to a furor with it had to come out mm-hmm. and say, no, that's not what our report says. <laughs> our report basically says yeah. by, you know, if you don't address greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, you're going to end up with this kind of consequence in
0: 2100.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, we <think> so. Anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, Very
1: different, very different meaning, but it got taken up by, what is a very prominent con- who is a very prominent congresswoman excuse me who is a very someone who is a very prominent congresswoman and spoken incorrectly and suddenly put all over the internet so um, yeah so maybe maybe we'll save that for another time and we can do a whole thing on science communication and that sort of philosophical argument of at what point do scientists have to say nope you can't that's not correct i won't let you Get away with using my knowledge that way
0: or the knowledge that i've produced that way yep well with that uh i am out of brain i am out of electrons in my brain so we uh we can conclude if there are no other things that you would like to say
1: no um i think i think the only things that we can say is given given time of year uh merry christmas to those of you who celebrate um happy holidays happy hanukkah happy kwanzaa all that kind of jazz um happy holidays more generally for me it's merry christmas but um all that kind of jazz and science santas wish you a uh wish you a very happy holidays i guess that's what we are this time we're science santas or
0: science (laughs) santas yeah here this is my my beard there we go (laughs) (laughs) um yeah yeah that, that's the other all right thing I well it was lovely and i hope you all enjoyed that and please go read the paper for yourself as always it's open access i believe so you should be able to get a hold of a uh, full text of it and let us know in the comments what you think of it and what you think of our thoughts on it and and all all will be all will be good whatever you have to say
1: all righty then we hope you stay curious everybody Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rogue Journal Club. If you want to suggest articles for the show, please consider becoming a supporter of shiasofia.locals.com. The link for the Locals community is available in the show notes. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shia Sophia production. Copyright 2023.